Chapter Three of The Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter Three Furnished Lodgings. Now I know that the walls of sense that seemed so impenetrable, that seemed to loom up above the heavens, and to be founded below the depths, and to shut us in for evermore are no such everlasting impassable barriers as we fancied, but thinnest and most airy veils that melt away before the seeker, and dissolve as the early mist of the morning about the brooks. Arthur Machen, The House of Souls In common with the many persons who have some imagination but small taste for metaphysics, Constance had conceived of the invisible world as situated somehow in the air, crisply defined within its own frontiers, and amenable to the usual classifications of geography. Its inhabitants were as safely bestowed as the inhabitants of the zoo. They were behind strong bars of natural phenomena, and could not get out. The spirit world of the old and the astral plane of the new occultists each suggested to her separate cages into which the curious might sometimes look. This woman had the mania of adventure and few opportunities of gratifying her taste. For years she had moved within the dull boundaries of a wage-earner's existence, which she abhorred but could not overpass. Once she had explored the deeps of life, now heights and deeps alike seemed shut from her. She longed for a new landscape, experience, danger. Hence her sudden excursion into life's uncharted outskirts, those building estates which the spirit of man has not yet decided to develop. Though she was, in her own opinion, wholly free from superstition, she had thought it possible that by deliberate recourse to the self-hypnotizing ceremonial of the old magicians, she might at any rate peep into the strange wild district beyond the barriers of sense. For much that is obviously absurd when ascribed to the agency of unforeseen forces becomes acceptable to the educated mind if interpreted in terms of psychology, explaining the human soul with that precision which is so sadly lacking in the Pentateuch this science had taught Constance that the release of her subliminal powers was all that was necessary if she wished to perceive the unknown but strictly natural world beyond the threshold as an interesting extension of the known. If you see in your incantation a method of shifting the field of consciousness and call your magic wand an autoscope, these things no longer seem silly, but take their place as part of the cosmic plan. A careful study of the work of Professor James had further convinced her that some forms of credulity are still compatible with self-respect. But the result of her temporary will to believe, and of the experiment which it had prompted, was, as she now felt, profoundly unsatisfactory. She was left in complete doubt as to whether or no the invocation had worked, and the sceptical state, so convenient when its object is the dogma of a too strenuous religion, is very uncomfortable when applied to an individual ghost. If her conjuration had indeed released supernatural powers, if it were true that something had happened, the inner eye had been opened upon a hidden plane of being, then she had seen what? 
an unmeaning and horrible interference with that solid earth and those respectable laws of nature which she preferred to take for granted a column of dust that mounted and hung in the air as if endowed with some incomprehensible life the thought of it of the intimate and unnatural thing was more dreadful than any phantom could have been it seemed to make all things unsafe she decided that it could not must not be true science came to the assistance of its child and helped her to put a proper interpretation on an adventure which refused to square itself with any known theory of the unseen but ranged itself easily amongst the accredited varieties of optical and auditory hallucination to look at it in any other way would have been too horrible to connect the strange and tormented voice which as she assured herself she had not really heard with that vision of the writhing twisting misty yet living thing which rose one knew not how and vanished one knew not where this was to knock the bottom out of all her past experience to acquiesce in the unreality of all real things even of life constance adored life she had clutched it and been stung by it but in spite of this rebuff she remained its lover adoring the wonders which she never tasted passionately credulous of charms which she was not permitted to enjoy the world which she lived unconscious of life as children sit upon the knee of their mother and play indifferently with little toys never pausing to look into her face this normal practical earning and spending world had always seemed strange to her its scales of values unreal and remote she had silently refused to acknowledge that scale of values the importance of demeanour and propriety of buying and selling of food furniture games change of air and of all those little sterile daily acts watching other women in their attitude towards life she was reminded of persons who suddenly confronted by a goddess confine their attention to the fact that she twiddles her thumbs but in spite of brave theories of curiosity boredom and eternal readiness for the adventures which so seldom came she was invaded now by a longing for ordinary trivial homely things the instinctive human fear of the unseen had been awakened by the evening's performance as she walked she looked for a dog who might be persuaded to lick her hand she would have liked to gossip with her landlady or struggle for bargains at a sale a beggar accosted her and she who had so few pennies to spare took out her purse she made a remark about the weather eagerly thirsting for the little contact with humanity which would obliterate the memory of that other contact with something perhaps which was not human at all but the beggar was taciturn he took the money and went away constance's eyes followed him with regret the mood of adventure was over and the reactive had come in the midst of her solitary and uncongenial life which a cultivated scepticism did little to cheer she had wished so much to open a new door to satisfy latent but passionate curiosities add new territory to her domain now that wish had departed leaving behind it the insecure sensation of one who has peeped for a moment through a forbidden door in the ramparts 
and obtained from this glimpse a permanent memory of great precipices all about her dwelling-place of the black gulf and soundless moat below she dreaded the four walls of her room shutting her in to a tete-a-tete with her own imagination presently she came to those four walls by way of a grained door and three flights of linoleum-covered stairs she fumbled for matches and lighted her duplex lamp it smelt as usual in an refreshingly real way the dingy mantel border maroon cloth with a faded embroidery of old gold chrysanthemums further reassured her but she avoided the mirror and would have liked to cover it up had it not been that she was afraid of despising herself her own contempt was the only humiliation that she could not bear vera's toys lay everywhere constance picked up a doll frock upon which the child had evidently wiped her mouth after eating bread and jam for tea actuality was there ready to encourage and support its worshipper she dropped the frock and went to the window looking out from her empty bright and hideous room which distressed her into the dim and attractive night the soft rain which was hardly more than a determined dampness had given a delicate sheen to the sloping roof next her own and she enjoyed it with that cultivated taste for appearance which is the prerogative of solitary lives her rooms for cheapness sake were high up and the vista was all of slates parapets and chimney-pots delightfully various full of quaint and unreasonable irregularities with that character of ruggedness which is peculiar to the tops of things the moist roof comforted constance it gave to her suddenly an image of the whole safe and mighty city enshrouded in a benevolent mist of rain all the bright eyes of its million houses peering with the utmost assurance into the dusk all the vivid streaks of trains and trams running in and under its roads without fear or hesitation that solid sharply lit assertive city was full of living creatures real ones it was so compact so assured so full of itself that there could be no room for the invisible populations to creep between its close networks of shops and souls she heard the jingle of a hansom in the street behind her the scrape and clatter of the hoofs as it drew up the iron cried real 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 as it struck the ground constance knew the sound very well once night had fallen many hansoms came to the house in the street behind sometimes the noise and all that was implied by it saddened and disgusted her now it echoed the beloved music of the town and brought her an inexplicable sense of companionship and consolation for years of intensest loneliness had taught her to extract from human noises human sights something of the social warmth for which she longed she suddenly found that it was quite easy to turn back into the glaring and solitary room it too was part of the sheltering town a cell her cell in the great hive and therefore as friendly to her as protective as the streets there was nothing nothing real to differentiate this evening from other evenings no reason why she should not make her cocoa as usual read a while and go to bed she went to the china cupboard and discovered with vexation that her favorite cup had been used for painting water 
and left unwashed. She turned and glanced round the room, searching for further disagreeable results of Vera's activity. Then she saw near the fireplace a little column of dust that rose and hung in the air. She stared at it with the dull and bewildered stare of a backward child who was given a difficult task. It was far beyond her power of assimilation, but she perceived it to be henceforward a part of her life, added to experience by her own act and desire. Her nature rose then, of its own accord, to meet it, as usually happens when the great things of life break abruptly upon the soul. She was not particularly astonished. She was hardly afraid. She began to walk up and down the room, trying to argue with herself, recalling to her remembrance all that she had ever read upon self-suggestion and hallucination. These considerations, however, wore a hopelessly academic air and brought no conviction with them. At intervals her mind returned with a jerk to the actualities of the moment, and she glanced hastily and furtively at the corner of the room. Always the cloud of dust hung in the air. She knew it in her heart to be a sign of life, of something that would communicate with her if it could. She felt it there, as lonely and as curious as herself, but she was not softened by its need. She set her whole will as a barrier against its coming. She was determined to ward off this horrible companionship which pressed toward her with a certain wistfulness, like some desperate and desolate creature exiled in a foreign town. She felt the assault of its desire, and resisted with all her strength. The room grew cold as she stood there with clenched hands and rigid knees. This time she recognized the symptom as one that was proper to her state. Then the little gray thing wavered and leaned toward her. It was like a sudden sally from an invested citadel. Constance wavered too, and knew the battle to be lost. She screamed, and was not even ashamed of herself. There was an answering scream from the next room. Vera cried out, Tante, Tante, what's the matter? I want you. It's dark and I'm awake. She went to the child. Herself the more terrified, the more childlife. She, too, was awake in the dark and accepted with gratitude the comforting presence of a fellow victim. There was a feeble gas-jet in the passage, and by its light Vera's small dark face, convulsed with fear, was discernible as a shadowy patch amongst the tossed bedclothes. Constance gathered the little warm body to her own lap. It shook with the terror of an animal which scents panic in its neighborhood. She said with unusual tenderness, What's the matter, my little one? For the spur of fear had touched her human instincts on the quick. Vera cried, Oh, I don't know, but it's dark, it's dreadful, and I heard a boogie scream in my alone. There are no boogies, darling. You are dreaming. As she said it, she wished that it were true. Vera curled herself tightly against the broad, firm shoulder. You hold me tight, and then they won't come she said. Constance, sitting in the darkness on the uncomfortable bedroom chair, with the child's heavy body in her arms, the querulous little voice in her ears, saying, Hold me tight, you mustn't go, you shan't, wished that she might thus sit forever, 
with the protective influence of the flesh between her and the invading foe. It was a new sensation, for Vera was not an attractive child, and her many claims upon attention had never included a sentimental appeal. She seemed to present no promise of a future womanhood, but rather, in some elusive way, a condensed history of those animal natures through which her spirit had presumably climbed on its way toward life. The squat stature, the heavy limbs, the lowering brow, the wide and formless mouth, were adapted to be the agents of instinct rather than of character, and instinct, elemental appetites, and uncontrolled passions had already sealed them. But at this moment Constance forgot those things. She looked at the clumsy little body with a new eagerness, a new possessive sense. She cuddled it against her bosom, concentrated on its helplessness, its happy ignorance, its warmth. By her own act, her own arrogant curiosity, strangeness and terror had been admitted to her universe. They must not be permitted to infect this scrap of life which was in her keeping. She perceived that she must endure them alone, must never entertain company in that dreadful room of windows which looked out upon the timeless, spaceless wilds. Everything, after all, had to be attempted and endured alone once childhood was past. The hive-like city of a myriad cells, which seemed so social and so warm, was really a city of myriad prisons. Each inhabitant, in some unendurable hour when the view from the windows was too clear, the solitude of the four walls too keen, would fling himself, as she had done, upon this door to find that an inexorable hand had turned the key. But in some of the cells, two were shut together, and they protected one another from the impact of solitude and fear, so that the prison straightway became a home. There was no one who would do this for her, no one in all the world to whom she could tell her adventure, to whom she could appeal for the sheltering love, the dear human presence, the foolish comforting platitudes of common sense. She had got to see it out, and when she had seen it out, no one would know, no one would blame her curiosity or admire her courage. This fact added to the old monotonous loneliness in which she had lived so long a new and bitter sense of isolation. Vera was quickly comforted. Soon she fell asleep. Constance put her into bed very gently, left a lighted candle and a chocolate cream by her side, and returned to the sitting-room. As she entered, she glanced quickly toward the corner. But the column of dust was not there. She was reassured and shut the door softly. Then she perceived that there was a figure sitting by the fireplace. It was perhaps less a figure than a form, an impressionist sketch of humanity without detail and without sex. That unnerved her, and she shrank with beating heart against the closed door, hid her face with her hands, and stayed in that comforting and self-imposed darkness for a period which seemed to have no relation to ordinary intervals of time. At last she heard within her mind the sad and wailing voice which had first attacked her in the bookshop, but it had lost its original accent of fear and grief. It said, If they are all cowards, what am I to do, and how shall I ever understand? 
because she could not endure the taunt of cowardice even from a voice which she suspected was her own she raised her head and looked again then she saw two brilliant wild and hungry eyes which gazed into hers from the recesses of some alien life that had caught them in its folds she said uh, what are you what have i done and again the silent voice replied you know she exclaimed no i, I do not understand it seemed to her that it was a sad and lost thing which had answered her with difficulty and picking its way as it were amongst the strange periods of a foreign tongue it said nor do i but i think that you have got to see me as a shape as something which has a limiting edge because otherwise you will not let me enter your experience you are dreaming so deeply that you cannot recognize spirit unless it enters into the unreasonable illusions of your dream so i must attack your consciousness on its ordinary earthly plane because i will get in i will know i have got to understand she cried out suddenly oh it, it isn't real it can't be real the voice said no a picture built of your dream stuff that is all but do not be deceived all pictures represent realities i am here within the appearance as you are there within your clothes what does the shape matter it is only a little dust but there was no one sitting by the fire she exclaimed in her astonishment i, I thought i saw and there was again a voice that replied and you think you know and you think you feel what strange and meaningless dreams then the last scrap of courage deserted her and she seized the lamp and fled ingloriously from the room but she turned at the door and looked swiftly and furtively at the corner of the fireplace from which she fled it was a coward's glance and met a coward's retribution there was a little eddy of dust that rose from the floor and hung suspended in the air constance undressed hastily and lay wakeful with vera held tightly in her arms end of chapter three